So, speaking on a history of life after death, um, really pleased to welcome all the way from Australia, just for you, honest, um, <laughs> Professor Philip Harmon. Um, he's a professor of religion at Queensland University. Uh, yeah. Is that okay? Is it easy enough to hear? Cool. Seems to be pretty good. Uh, thank, you for, thank you for inviting me and thank you for, for coming out on this nice summer, summer evening. Um, I'm very grateful. Uh, I was going to talk, uh, this was sort of billed as uh, the history of life after death and uh, it's actually the afterlife in the modern West but I'll advert back to various things in modernity that relate back to earlier ideas. Uh, I thought today I should have called it a slice of afterlife. Damn, that would have had a nice, nice flavour, but we'll live with that. So, uh, the afterlife in the modern West. And I begin with uh, uh, a quote from a book called Explaining Death to Young Children. When he awoke, he looked about with surprise. He couldn't believe what he saw, a startling change had come to his old body. The warmth of the sun soon dried the moisture from his new body. He'd become a dragonfly. Swooping and dipping in great curves, he flew through the air. He felt exhilarated in the new atmosphere. Doris Stickney's Water Bugs and Dragonflies Explaining Death to Young Children. The English comedy uh, television series Rev tells the story of an Anglican priest, as you may know, Adam Smallbone, who's moved from a rural parish to St Saviour in the Marshes, a rundown parish in Hackney in the east end of London. And there he has responsibility for the local primary school. When one of the school's favourite teachers is killed in an accident, Adam has the task of talking to the children about his death, and he does so by telling the fable of the water bugs and the dragonfly. He tells the children of a little colony of water bugs at the bottom of a river. Every now and then, one of the bugs will crawl up a plant through the water into the light and never be seen again. One day, one special little water bug decided that he too wanted to crawl up a plant. So he crawled up the plant through the surface of the water and into the air, and he turned into a beautiful dragonfly. He flew around in the air and was as happy as he'd ever been, but when he tried to go back down into the water to tell his bug friends how wonderful it was, he couldn't, because he wasn't a bug anymore. He was a dragonfly. This upset him, until he remembered that all his friends would one day crawl up the plant too and join him in the sun. Well, Adam Smallbone's answer to the question of what happens to us when we die is, as we'll see, a very modern one. But the questions with which he grapples are perennial. Do we survive death? Will we recognise ourselves? Will we be reunited with those we've left behind or those who've gone before? Will our actions in this life be rewarded or punished? Will we have an opportunity to make amends after death or change our ways? Will our lives continue immediately after death or do we have to wait for a final end to history? And what kind of body might we have? For most of us, the thought of our ceasing to be is unbearable. On the other hand, the thought that we shall live forever is almost unthinkable. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the modern Western heaven. Well, how modern is it? Well, by the modern Western heaven, I mean the idea of the afterlife that's developed since, say, the middle of the 19th century around the 1850s. It's drawn from my most recent book, The Afterlife, copious and 
quantities of which are over there. Um, uh, and I was worried when I was writing it that I mightn't finish it before finding out how wrong I was, or worse, <laughs> not finding out anything at all. But I made it, and I'm still here, and perhaps none the wiser, but still wondering. So let me start by talking about the traditional views of the afterlife to give you some idea of where we come from and therefore how very different our modern views are. Let's take the year 1800 as our marker. And by then, there were two stories that had been around for, say, about 1800 years. The first of these was a story about history. It was a story that saw history in terms of four main events, creation, fall, redemption, and last things. Thus, after the creation by God at a particular point in time, traditionally within the Christian tradition about 4000 BC, there was the fall of Adam and Eve and the beginnings of death and suffering. This was followed by the redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, followed by the last things. And what were the last things? Well, at the end of history, there'd be a resurrection of the dead who would come up out of their graves. God would then come in judgment. The good would be judged for heaven, for eternity, and the wicked to hell for eternity. Now, the second story was not about what happened at the end of history, but rather what happened immediately after death. And there are two versions of this, a Catholic and a Protestant one, no surprise there. The Catholic version was quite simply this, that at the point of death, at the time of death, the really wicked would go to hell, the really good would go to heaven, and most of us, those of us who weren't really, really good at being really, really bad, the naughty would go somewhere in between, a place called purgatory, where we'd be punished and purified and made fit for heaven. The Protestant version was much the same, it just dropped out purgatory. In both cases, the judgment on whether we would be heading eventually for heaven or hell would be made by God at the moment of death. Heaven then consisted above all in the vision of God and an eternity spent in praise and worship of him. So the history of the afterlife in the West up to about 1800 consisted of a complicated interweaving of these two stories or a rejection of the one or the other. But on balance, we might say something like this, that the established traditions of Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, Anglicans and so on, opted to focus on life immediately after death where the more sectarian versions focused on the imminence of the end of the world, as in beware the end of the world is at hand. Well, how does the modern heaven differ? Well, first, hell disappears. So there tends to be an emphasis on the salvation of everybody. Hell's torments, demons with pitchforks, the eternal punishments of the damned in hellfire, all this is gone. And with liberal Catholics and with liberal Protestants too, the only hell in the modern theology is essentially one of our own choosing. It's the decision that we make to stay in eternal separation from God, although we can change our minds if we wish to at any point in time. Secondly, 
in contrast to the vast difference that there used to be between this world and the next, between this earth here and heaven up there, in the new heaven, or the new afterlife, only a thin veil separates heaven from earth, and heavenly life begins immediately after death. So as we'll see in more detail later, we can be in touch with the dead and they with us. Thirdly, rather than heaven being structurally opposite to life on earth, a place of relief from the trials and tribulations of this world, it's really more a continuation and a fulfilment of material existence. So we might say that the opposition between soul and body, spirit and matter, this life and the afterlife has really disappeared. There's a kind of open borders policy, some of which or something that I know many of you are familiar with in more recent times, um, for good or ill. Fourthly, although heaven remains a place of rest, the saints are increasingly active in heaven, making progress in a joy-filled environment amidst a policy of work is fun. And finally, a focus on human love replaces the primacy of the vision of God. Social relations are fundamental to the afterlife, not a distraction from it. And God is loved primarily through the love shown to other heavenly spirits. Now, all this was not least because of the influence of a Swedish Lutheran visionary called Emanuel Swedenborg. At the turn of 1688 to oh, I put the dates there, 1688 to 1772, that divinely chosen seer of our age, as Goethe described him, who said Goethe was impregnated with the joys of heaven, to whom the spirit spoke through all senses and the entire body, in whose bosom the angels lived. For Swedenborg claimed in his visions to have crossed the narrow sea, to have experienced life on the other side and to have conversed with the spirits there, all of whom once lived a normal life on earth. So in Swedenborg, we have a new source of knowledge of the afterlife, beyond both reason on the one hand and revelation on the other, namely personal visionary experience. Now strongly influenced by the body-mind dualism of the French philosopher René Descartes, this was Cartesianism gone cosmic. Ironically, perhaps, body and soul, matter and spirit, science and religion were reconciled by emphasising that they were fundamentally different. So, at the time of death, according to Swedenborg, we enter the world of spirits. Here, there's a vast number of spirits gathered. As the place of preparation to enter heaven or hell, there's no fixed limit to our stay in this world of spirits. Some have only barely entered and are taken up into heaven or cast down into hell. Some stay for a week, others for years, although never any more than 30. The more that our deeper nature is in correspondence with our outward nature, the less time we have to spend in the world of spirits. In this next state after death, people are transformed into their true selves. This is the result of being taken up by angels who instruct them about the Lord, heaven and the angelic life. New arrivals with an overall disposition to evil soon wish to get away from their angelic instructors 
And when the angels notice this, they leave them. These people will drift towards others of a similarly evil nature, thus turning away from God and towards the hell they were united with in this world. Those whose good nature dominates will eventually slough off any remaining evil and be purified. It's now that the final separation of the good from the wicked occurs and the wicked choose to go into hell while the good prepare to enter heaven. And now Swedenborg's most radical innovation occurs. For the good now enter the world of the angels. More importantly, they become angels. He said, for we have been created to enter heaven and become angels. Not surprising then, he said, that angels have a truly human form. I can say with full confidence, declared Swedenborg, on the grounds of several years of experience, that in their form, angels are completely human. They have faces, eyes, ears, chests, arms, hands and feet. They see each other, they hear each other, and they talk to each other. In short, they lack nothing that belongs to humans, except they're not clothed with a material body. Well, be that as it may, according to Swedenborg, like-minded angels may come together to live in communities, the larger ones consisting of tens of thousands of individuals, the smaller of thousands and some only of hundreds. They are nonetheless even people who live alone. Within these communities, the blessed, the angels, live in houses much like ours. <laughs> now, granting that the form of the angels, actually not much like ours, more like thatched cottages, I think, in somewhere. <laughs> granting that the form of the angels is like that of their earlier human selves, the angels are divided into male and female. And this leads Swedenborg again to break with the long Christian tradition of there being no marriage in heaven, or at least of no weddings in heaven. For marriage in heaven, nevertheless, is different to that on earth. It's a meeting not of bodies, but rather of minds. Heavenly weddings are followed by feasts that are attended by many, and the key difference between earthly and heavenly marriages is, and I don't think you're going to be surprised at what I say next, is procreation. Although there are sexual relations between couples in heaven, in place of the procreation of children, there's only the procreation of what is good and what is true. There's no place in Swedenborg's vision for the beatific vision. Rather, the emphasis is on the erotic union of two people in which the love of the man is truth flowing towards the good and the love of the woman is the good flowing towards the true. Here, erotic love in heaven has replaced divine love as the ultimate source of goodness and conjugal sex is the exemplar of the sacred. Well, it may surprise you perhaps that Swedenborg's view of the modern heaven was particularly enormously influential. Let's take the work of William Blake, particularly in his illustrations for The Grave, an 1808 poem by Robert Blair. <coughs> Thus, Blake's drawing of the meeting of a family in heaven shows a couple reunited after death with two other couples in close embrace. To the modern viewer, it all looks innocent enough, but contemporary viewers were shocked. One declared in the 7th of August, 1808 edition of the newspaper, The Examiner, that, quote, the salutation of a man and his wife meeting in the pure mansions of heaven presented the most indecent attitudes because libidinousness intrudes itself upon our thoughts. Well, why were they shocked? 
Well, it was because Blake seemed to be suggesting not only the reunion of loved ones, but of a continuation of marriage and sex in heaven. But let's take perhaps a more mainstream 19th century modern heaven, this time from America after the Civil War, and a view that was significantly influenced by Swedenborg, albeit with significant differences too. It was a book by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, and it was called The Gates of Jar. The Gates of Jar. The Gates of Jar. Now, Elizabeth Phelps was among the most influential popularisers of the social heaven. It is said to be the second best-selling novel of the 19th century. I'm not sure I believe that, but of its immense popularity, there can be no doubt. For it spoke to a generation traumatised by the American Civil War. And it told the story of Mary Cabot, a New England woman, who was finding it difficult to come to terms with the death of her brother Roy in the American Civil War. Mary was the better able to come to terms with her loss after the arrival of her aunt Winifred, bracket, a Swedenborgian, who was able to console her with a different understanding of heaven, one not of the vision of God, but of social relations and useful activities. Her brother Roy, it was said, is only out of sight, but he is here, close beside you all this time. And along with Roy, we too will all become angels in the next life. Death is simply the slipping off of the outer body as a husk slips off from its kernel, she said. God is represented primarily by a very human Jesus with whom we will talk as a man talketh with a friend. She also holds the view that babies will outnumber adults in heaven. Not quite my idea of the heavenly life, but nonetheless, she said, and they'll be given into the care of those women who are especially fond of them, kind of eternal nannies of some kind. So unlike Swedenborg's, hers was not, however, an erotic heaven. Her heaven was about romantic love, family life and Victorian values. So it was a much more domesticated, genteel and well-mannered affair. It just as firmly rejected the Protestant orthodoxy of a God-centred heaven. She said, there was something about adoration and the harpers harping with their harps and the sea of glass and crying, worthy the lamb and a great deal more that bewildered and disheartened me so that I could scarcely listen to it. I don't doubt that we shall glorify God primarily and happily. Can't we do it in some other way than by harping and praying? <laughs> so Phelps's heaven was a projection into the afterlife of the bourgeois sensibilities of provincial life in 19th century New England. As Mark Twain rather unkindly said of it, hers was a, quote, mean little 10-cent heaven about the size of Rhode Island. <laughs> well, although in heaven we'll be in spiritual bodies, we'll be very much like ourselves, easily recognisable to others. So it'll be a place of companionship, of amiable conversation, of talk and laugh and jokes and play. We'll see both sacred and secular heroes, King David and Paul, the poets William Cowper and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Abraham Lincoln. Here domestic life is made divine and divine life is domesticated. Quote, a happy home is the happiest thing in the world, declared Aunt Winifred. I don't see why it shouldn't be in any world. I expect to have my beautiful home and my husband and my daughter Faith as I had them here. 
and children will play the piano, have toys and eat strawberries and ginger snaps. <laughs> Adults will have books and music. They'll go to art galleries and orchestrated halls, sort of lectures by Moses on the Ten Commandments in the, in the morning, followed up by Jesus in the afternoon telling Moses how he got it wrong, that kind of thing. <laughs> Adults will have books and music, orchestral halls, and perhaps even travel to other planets. There'll be work. It'll be pleasant and available to all. Now, this is the time when the idea that children would become angels would come into vogue. This idea remains theologically orthodox both in Protestantism and Catholicism, but it still continues to find popular support as a consolation among those bereaved by the loss of a child on this side of, a grave, of the grave. And this book, importantly, I think, The Gates Ajar, also reflected new relationships between people and animals. Phelps was open to the notion that people would be reunited with their companion animals in heaven. To the question of whether animals have souls, she said, I should never have had the heart to say no to that. This was the same century in which there had developed commonly the practice of keeping animals as pets, and it did lead to new understandings of the connections between people and animals. And thus it became progressively more difficult to conceive how happiness in heaven could ever be complete in the absence of the animals who had loved and been loved so much. Well, something else happened in the middle of the 19th century. The spirits themselves decided that rather than us seeking them out in their homes through visions, they would seek us out in ours by manifesting themselves to us. The beginnings of spiritualism are often dated to the 31st of March, 1848, but actually we find spiritual, spiritist activities 50, 50 years before that in Germany, among Swedenborg circles, but be that as it may. In that year, 1848, the Fox family of Hydesville, New York, began to communicate with the spirits that were the cause of the mysterious rappings and knockings that had been heard into the house into which they'd moved in December of the previous year. And within the next several years, the three Fox sisters, Margaret, Kate and Leah, were hailed as the leading figures in a new mass movement that promoted communication with the world of spirits. By 1851, it was estimated that there were 100, 100 mediums in New York City and 50 to 60 private circles in Philadelphia. Now, seances undoubtedly provided consolation to those who received a message from a deceased loved one. But they served a variety of other functions. They provided entertainment for the curious. They provoked frisson of horror for the believer, moments of amusement for the skeptic, and phenomena to be explained for the scientists. And they continually crossed the boundary between the religious and the secular. For the conservative Christian, to attend a seance was to dabble with the devil. For the more credulous and adventurous, this was perhaps part of their attraction. But they also appealed to those of a liberal faith or even of those to those of no faith at all. Now, spiritualism adopted most of the features of the modern social afterlife and promulgated them. Hell was non-existent, heaven was available to everyone, the spiritualist afterlife was very much a continuation of this one, and so on. Moreover, 
we would all be recognisably the same people, our spiritual bodies very much like our physical bodies with all the imperfections removed. And generally speaking, this tradition, like the Christian tradition generally, had most of us in the afterlife, whether immediately after death or at the, at the time of the last judgment, in bodies with all the imperfections removed around about 33 years of age. Not bad, not bad. That would do, if only I could go back. Anyway, the heavenly landscape would be a more perfect version of that which was left behind here on earth. Spiritual and moral progress towards perfection in heaven would continue on from where it had been left here. As the spiritualist magazine The Banner of Light insisted in 1857, spiritualism, quote, conjures up no awful visions of the future, of burning lakes and pitfalls. It tells of an eternal progression in all that is bright and pure and beautiful until the soul becomes a part of the glorious harmony of God. And within spiritualism, as within the social heaven more generally, God played a minimal role. Life was lived in the here and now, or the here and then, or the there and then, not under the eye of God, but under the close scrutiny of the dead. God, as a fearsome judge, abdicated completely his role as an enforcer of morality, and we now lived... Uh, in the view of an assorted set of relatives hovering about 60 miles out beyond the Earth's atmosphere. So by virtue of the emphasis on manifestations of the spirits that could not only be seen, but also heard and touched, spiritualists saw the world of the spirits as in principle open to scientific inquiry. This was a religion that could be scientifically proven. For the spiritualist scientists, this was a quest to bring the phenomena of the spirit into the realm of the natural, or rather, to extend the realm of the natural into the realm of the spirit. This was the quest for immortality adapted to the age of science. And for such spiritualist science, the boundary between the natural on the one hand and the spiritual on the other became more fluid, and the distinction between matter and the soul more blurred. Now, no surprise here that more hard-nosed scientists would have nothing whatever to do with what they considered mystical mumbo-jumbo. But others besides scientists also took a more active interest in exposing what they took to be the activities of frauds and charlatans, namely the mediums themselves. Magicians were more adept at spotting the tricks than scientists. So the magician Harry Houdini, Houdini certainly was good at spotting the frauds. Now, he'd been always interested in spiritualism, although he became progressively more sceptical about its claims. But with the significant increase of interest in contacting those who had perished on the battlefields of World War I, spiritualism surged in popularity in the 1920s. Houdini crusaded vigorously during this period against fraudulent mediums. I believe the work I'm doing, he said, is the greatest humanitarian achievement of my life. I'm helping to alleviate the years of worry that's driving many to the brink of insanity by their inordinate desire to communicate with the dead. Now, the modern afterlife was not, however, always a matter of individual immortality but on occasion of final absorption into the divine, or even the recognition that the self and the divine are one. 
For at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, Hinduism was coming to the West and new forms of the afterlife were in the offing. But they did so in the West with a quite different flavour to their place of origin. Within the Indian tradition, liberation from this world of samsara only occurs after we've gone through an infinite series of reincarnations within this world. Thus, there were, quite simply put, in the Indian traditions, an infinite number of afterlives in the future, as there had been in the past, before liberation finally and mercifully brings all these afterlives to an end. So in the Indian traditions, reincarnation is the great horror from which freedom is sought. But within the modern West, reincarnation has operated in a quite different register. The sequence of lives is not so much to be escaped from as to be embraced, embraced as a series of ongoing opportunities for progress, for learning and for growth. In this sense, it's a this-worldly variation on those opportunities for progress provided by the otherworldly social heaven. So Western reincarnation synthesizes Eastern understandings of the infinite cycle of birth and rebirth with Western ideals of spiritual progress, not so much the wheel of samsara as an ever-ascending spiral. And this synthesis of West, Western progress with Eastern reincarnation reaches back to the late 19th century Theosophical Society of Helena Blavatsky. Now, it's also to Madame Blavatsky that the modern Western awareness of karma is owed. For her, this was the natural law that underlay all spiritual progress. And crucially, it provided both an explanation of why in this life bad things happen to good people, or the reverse, and it obviated the necessity for a divine recompense or punishment in the next. In this balancing out of the good and the evil according to this moral law of cause and effect embedded in karma, God has become redundant. So spiritualism, Eastern ideas and theosophy were to come together with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the celebrated author of the Sherlock Holmes books. On the 21st of September in 1920, he arrived in Adelaide, South Australia, my hometown. Adelaide was the first official stop. I wasn't there for the occasion, I hazard. <laughs> well, not in this life, anyway. Adelaide was the first official stop on a four-month tour of Australia and New Zealand to promote spiritualism. As early as 1887, Doyle had put himself on the public record as a student of psychic matters, and he'd become a member of the Society for Psychical Research in the early 1890s. And it was during this period that he was to become more and more impressed by the spiritualist position. Although he was later to lose faith in, modern Blavats in Madame Blavatsky, he was also around this time deeply interested in theos theosophy, which presented, he said, a very well thought out and reasonable scheme, parts of which, notably reincarnation and karma, he went on to say, seem to offer an explanation for some of the anomalies of life. Well, by the time he'd arrived in Australia, he'd become a passionate advocate for spiritualism. And like many others who'd lost loved ones in the Great War of 1914 to 18 and the subsequent Spanish flu, 
his own son having survived the war but tragically succumbing to influenza. He was drawn to the proof spiritualism offered of life after death and he was eager to embrace the opportunity it gave to communicate with those nearest and dearest and departed. So it was to an audience of 2,000 people in the grandly Victorian Adelaide Town Hall that Doyle delivered his lecture on Saturday 25 September 1920, quote, on a subject which concerns the destiny of every man and woman in this room, just like tonight. Well, perhaps. Elsewhere, he was vividly to depict the afterlife as it had been gleaned from communications from the other side. Quote, the information we have, he said, depicts a heaven of congenial work and congenial play with every mental and physical activity of life carried on to a higher plane, a heaven of art, of science, of intellect, of organisation, of combat with evil, of home circles, of flowers, of wide travel, of sports, of the mating of souls, of complete harmony. This is what our dead friends describe, he said. When the truth of spiritualism was recognised, he believed, the result would be quite simply peace on earth and goodwill between all men and women, an earthly utopia, but one continually in touch with its heavenly counterpart. Well, for Doyle, the spirits of the dead were part of a larger world of spiritual beings that included fairies. His interest was particularly piqued when he heard in May 1920, while in the midst of planning his Australian trip, that five photographs of fairies had been taken by two cousins, Elsie Wright and Frances Griffith, who lived in the village of Cottingley in West Yorkshire. The first two photographs had come to public attention in mid-1919, when they were displayed at the Theosophical Society's annual conference in Harrogate in Yorkshire. The leading theosophist of the time, Edward Gardner, saw the girl's capacity to see fairies as a sign of an evolving new consciousness that the theosophists were prophesying. The fact, he said, that two young girls had not only been able to see fairies, which others had done, but had actually for the first time ever been able to materialise them at a density sufficient for their images to be recorded on a photographic plate meant, he said, that the next cycle of evolution was underway. Well, Doyle was just at the time writing an article on fairies for the Strand magazine when fortuitously he heard of the photographs. He and Gardner were soon collaborating on the story and having gained permission from Elsie and her father, Doyle included the two photographs in his article. In spite of his doubts, he had a determination to believe in the validity of the photos, not least because they bore witness to the new world of spirits that he believed was on the verge of discovery. When Columbus knelt in prayer upon the edge of America, he said, what prophetic eye saw all that a new continent might do to affect the destinies of the world? We also seem to be on the edge. Sorry, I've dropped into Churchill. We also <laughs> seemed to be on the edge of a new continent, he said, separated not by oceans, but by subtle and surmountable psychic conditions. Well, for the sceptics, and there were many, Doyle was only metaphorically and definitely not really off with the fairies. But Doyle was in the vanguard of a 20th century re-enchantment of the world. 
So this re-enchantment of the world during the 20th century was the consequence of the closing of the gap within modern popular culture between this life and the next, between this world and the other world. The connection between these two worlds is the key, film, uh, key theme in the film Photographing Fairies. This tells the story of a sceptical and world-weary photographer, Charles Castle, who's lost his new bride in a mountaineering accident shortly after his wedding day. As sceptical about the afterlife as he is about the other world, he attends a lecture at the Theosophical Society at which he debunks a picture of the Cottingley fairies, in spite of Arthur Doyle's declaration to the audience that the fairies are exiles from heaven and hell on the borderland, said Doyle, between this world and a better one. Subsequently, the photographer is converted from unbelief after experiencing and photographing fairies at the great tree in the Barkenwell Woods. This isn't the only world, he concludes. There's another world as close to this one as I am to you. And the film ends with his reunion with his wife in the other world. Here, science, in the form of photography, has turned from its role as the master of disenchantment to that of the servant of a re-enchanted world. Well, as we all know, enchanted worlds now abound alongside a disenchanted one. Boundary riders and border crosses have proliferated, both good and evil, fairies but also vampires and witches and wizards, werewolves and wraiths, shapeshifters and superheroes, angels and aliens, demons and zombies. Tolkien's Endor is populated with the angelic Ainur, elves, dwarves, hobbits, ents, orcs and trolls, and C.S. Lewis's Narnia is populated by humans, talking animals, and assorted Narnian creatures, dwarves, centaurs, cruels, dragons, giants, fauns, and so on and so forth. Around 100 fantastic and exotic creatures live in the imaginary world of Harry Potter. That other scenario that I began tonight with, that other scenario about the afterlife, that the world will end, now configured in terms of nuclear fire or global warming, still resonates among us. Yet even such pessimism finds its contrast in utopian optimism. There remains the belief that humanity as a whole is not so much on the eve of destruction, for those of you who can remember the song, as at the dawn of an ever-ascending evolutionary path of project. Some of us, among whom I rather embarrassedly count myself, were among those who believed that a new human consciousness that would lead to an earthly paradise was imminent. The dawning of the age of Aquarius, the beginning of the new age, was now. Well, it wasn't, but not to worry. So too, in the 21st century, the gap between this life and the next one is more opaque. And more generally, the distinction between an enchanted and a disenchanted world is harder to sustain intellectually. The enchanted imagination lives alongside disenchanted reason. The spaces between here and eternity, now and then, fact and fiction, the literal and the metaphorical, the religious and the magical, the rational and the imaginary have all become more blurred. So the modern world is one of multiple meanings, both enchanted and disenchanted. It's a world in which we can inhabit both an enchanted and a disenchanted world, a secular and a sacred history, this world and the next as a matter of leisure, 
or pleasure or the utmost seriousness. Belief can be embraced and disbelief can be happily and willingly suspended. Well, what are we to make of all this? We can say this at least. About the afterlife, before the end of our lives or the end of the world, we can know nothing. Here's a favourite passage of mine from the year 627. King Edwin of England, actually Northumbria, but who's counting? I better say that while we're in England, someone might pick me up on it. <laughs> Contemplating acceptance of the Christian faith, conferred about it with his friends and counsellors. And one of his chief men eloquently expressed our ignorance of our final destiny. The present life of man upon earth, he said, O king, seems to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, rather like the swift flight of a sparrow through the house, wherein you sit at supper in winter, with your eldermen and thanes, while the fire blazes in the midst and the hall is warmed, but the wintry storms of rain or snow are raging abroad. The sparrow flying in at one door and immediately out at another, whilst he is within, is safe from the wintry tempest. But after a short space of fair weather, he immediately vanishes out of your sight, passing from winter into winter again. So this life of man appears for a little while. But of what is to follow, or what went before, we know nothing at all. Well, that we all die, we know. But of what may lie beyond our deaths, we remain, like Edwin's advisor, completely ignorant. As for myself, I expect death is one event that unfortunately I shall not live to regret, even though I live in hope that I might be pleasantly and hopefully never unpleasantly surprised when my life and this world is to me no more. We don't know, but we do keep imagining, and our imaginings about the afterlife are a testimony to the hope that most of us still have for an extension of life beyond the grave. Our imaginings speak to the desire that many have expressed for light beyond the darkness of death, for ultimate goodness beyond present evils, and for final justice over earthly inequities. They give voice to the faith that many of us have that the drama of history and the minor role that each of us has played in it does have an ultimate meaning and does have an ultimate purpose one that is discernible from the vistas of eternity, if not from our present perspectives. And our imaginings still resonate with the confidence that St Paul had when he comforted those who despaired of this life with words of hope for a better life to come. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, he said, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Thanks. Hello. Hello, remaining people. Hello. You said thank you for that. It's nice to get something back. Okay, so um, now any questions for uh, Professor Armand? Um, before that, though, very quickly, we are the London Fortean Society. We occasionally work with Conway, once a month, usually work with Conway Hall to put on events. We also do events in pubs 
and other bizarre places, the street occasionally. You can find us, uh, there's our website, there's our Facebook page, and there's our Twitter for future things. We are just planning autumn at the moment. We're a little bit disorganized. Um, but we do, our, our next event is gonna be here on the 15th of September, looking at the sort of the myth of Nicholas Hawksmoor. Um, if you know who that is, that's gonna be very interesting. It's a chap who wrote a biography of Hawksmoor. Uh, now, uh, questions for uh, Professor Armand. Um, I'm going to demonstrate a question now. Philip, if you could choose what afterlife you went to, what sort of one would you like? Well, yes. Well, look, probably. I did a, I did a South Pacific cruise earlier this year, so I kind of, <laughs> you know, a club mid on a tropical isle would probably, <laughs> you know... Something along those lines. So it's like Valhalla, but with sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. the weird thing with the things that you scoot along the yeah. deck, whatever the hell that is, or curling. <laughs> curling, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a question. Um, just so you know, um, micro lectures where you show off to the speaker how much you know aren't completely welcome because everyone wants to get a question in and we've only got about 20 minutes. So. With that in hand, um, do you want me to pick, or are you okay to pick? Do you want to pick? I'll, I will pick, because then I'm in charge of the mic. Yeah, you have the mic. Hi. Uh, in the 19th century, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, and I think several other Christian sects, uh, adopted something called soul sleep. Yeah. I've never understood the concept. Yeah. I wonder if you can explain it. And does it have a biblical basis? Yeah. Uh, soul sleeping. Look, soul sleeping uh, essentially is the idea that, oh, let me cut back, two stories. One about the afterlife at the end of the world, one about the afterlife immediately after death. The notion of soul sleeping is the notion that there is no conscious existence immediately after death. In other words, you just fall asleep when you die and you're not conscious of anything until you wake up on the day of judgment and then you, well, you've never really left your body. Yes, you'd be reunited with your body. So soul sleeping is, the, is, in a sense, the rejection of the tradition that there's an immediate life after death for the sake of the emphasis on the day of resurrection when Christ comes in final judgment. Within Protestantism, it was most notable for its uh, endorsement by Martin Luther. He was a soul sleeper. There are really two forms of it. There are those who believe, like Luther did, that we do have an immortal soul. And so if we're not going to have a conscious existence immediately after death, we've got to do something with that immortal soul. So it becomes soul sleeping. For materialists who don't believe in that we have immortal souls anyway, then it really becomes the fact that we just die. We just go out of consciousness at death and then we're risen up on the last day with our consciousness and our bodies. So soul sleeping, soul dying. But effectively, it's the same thing. We have no consciousness of death. Uh, we have no consciousness of anything, I should say, until the final day of judgment. Uh, is it biblical? Look, in some senses, it's more biblical than life immediately after death for the simple reason that biblical material... The Old Testament is dominated by the notion of Hades, so we'll bracket that one out, but the later period, Old Testament period and the New Testament, really has the expectation of God coming in judgment. So it's very much uh, a, a tradition that expects the end of the world, and to all intents and purposes, 
ignores life immediately after death. The one exception, no, I tell a lie, the two exceptions are, no, the three exceptions are. <laughs> I'm sounding like the Spanish Inquisition in Monty Python. Um, the two exceptions are at least these two. One, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man looks up from hell and he sees Lazarus, etc. And that's clearly a story about life immediately after death. And the more important one uh, for those who argue for immediate life after death in the biblical context is Jesus saying to the thief, today thou shalt be with me. Today I say to you, thou shalt be with me in paradise. If you're a soul sleeper, then you, you rephrase that to, to have Jesus saying, I'm telling you today, as against yeah. tomorrow or yesterday, I'm telling you today, you'll be with me in paradise brackets at the end of the world. But anyway, so the biblical material is, dominates uh, the expectation of the imminent coming. I happen to think Jesus was a preacher of the imminent coming of God in judgment. Is that okay? I think that covers it. Yeah. Okay, I'm standing over here now. Oh, I've won up oh, the back. <laughs> thank you for the very interesting talk. Uh, I hope you can hear me okay. Can, yeah. Right, thank you. Um, it occurs to me there may be a problem if there's no soul sleeping. And I'm glad that was brought up because it helps me think about this a little more. And that is, people, if people are conscious in paradise and they have come from different centuries and different traditions and different views of philosophy of Christianity, are they going to get along together? Yes. Or will I, they have fights? Yeah. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a very sophisticated question for what's a more obvious problem. What happens if you come across your ex-wife or your ex-husband in heaven? You know, how can that be heavenly? But I take your point. The point goes to... Uh, the point goes to, I suppose, the problem with the universalist heaven that, you know, it, you don't have to go too far thinking and talking about heaven before you come up against whole sets of issues about, of that sort. You know, right, there used to be the classic joke, you know, people arrive in heaven and they say, oh, what's that big wall of, you know, that's for the, the Catholics are on the other side of it. They like to think they're the only ones here. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. All right, that kind of silly joke. But it's a real, you know... The real problem in the history of the afterlife is, once you start to really engage with it and think about it, so many conceptual problems pop up. You know, the problem, you know, the problem about infants, for example. You know, when in, in the sort of, from the early modern period onward, people became very attached to children who then died. You know, are children frozen forever in heaven as children or as babies? Well, it was a comfort to their mothers to think they might get to heaven and they'll have this baby. And, but on the other hand, that didn't seem fair to the babies or the children who are frozen for eternity as babies or children. Can't they mature in heaven? But then the other side of that was what happens when a woman arrives in heaven expecting to find her baby and she comes across some surly teenager who's a bedroom. <laughs> Difficult to get on with. So I think that's... You know, I think that's one of the really important points. The big story is, you know, how difficult it is once you start to push the logical boundaries. It all starts to look a bit tatty and difficult to argue. Yeah. Apart, you know, there's a serious question, you know, the really serious question about 
uh, you know, is it only by Jesus that I shall be saved? You know, the conservative Christian view is only Christians will go to heaven and the rest will be doomed uh, for eternity. There are universalist views within the Christian tradition that hold that everyone will get there eventually. Some who hold that everyone will get there eventually because Christ wants everyone to be saved. And some who say everyone will get there eventually because all the religions are valuable as ways of salvation. They're equally valuable and so on. But again, I just say there's a whole set of you know, problematic issues around there. Yeah. There was one up the front here. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm getting around to it. Oh, no. um, I'm here for this question, but um, just on that really briefly, I remember reading in Swedensborg years ago, and I may have misinterpreted this, where um, Swedensborg tried to say a similar thing, that everyone, every faith leads you to heaven. Um, and when considering Islam, he said, yeah, the angels sort of just pretend that they're Allah, and just to make Muslims feel okay, but really it's this heaven. But I don't yeah. know if you encountered that one and whether that's actually true. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky thing, the afterlife. I was just trying to piece this in my head, so if it doesn't make sense. But um, from what you're saying, from the like modern perspective of heaven, a lot of it's about salvation and even not even like godlike appearance in heaven. So doesn't that, from like a theological perspective, mean that religion, uh, religious mor morality and laws become quite irrelevant? So you don't need religion at all to get into heaven. So why should we bother? <laughs> no. I mean, there are two there are two stories that are always conflicting within the Christian tradition. One is that, uh, you know, the question of justice. It's just not fair the way it works on this side of the grave because it's obvious that the wicked, the wicked get all the goodies and the good don't do so well. So the afterlife is a way of balancing out uh, the injustices on this side of the grave by rewards or punishments afterwards. So that's, you know, that's a strong tradition. And I, I happen to think that you know, the origin of stories about reward and punishment in the afterlife probably comes from the sense of injustice on this side of the grave. That said, there's also a very strong tradition within the Christian tradition, and to some extent in Islam, but certainly within the Christian tradition. It comes from St. Augustine. It pops up predominantly in John Calvin, and that is that the sovereign will of God is what matters. So God does what he likes with those uh, <laughs> who arrive at the gates. And sometimes, you know, the wicked are rewarded. Now, add to that the notion within the Calvinist tradition, the, the notion of predestination, that when we walk in the door, when we're born, from that second, God has already predestined us for salvation or for damnation. And so, you know, God, and the argument there would be something like God cannot be bound by his own moral laws. You know, we can't have God having to damn or save those who are good or evil. So it's all down to God. Um, now, one side of that says, you know, part of me says, you beaut, let's eat, drink and be merry and have a good time because it doesn't matter. The other side of it within traditional Calvinism is, well, we'd better even emphasise further our moral good living, the fact we can accumulate good goods and properties and so on. You know, it's the classic move that Max Weber makes when he says, you know, out of, out of 
the determination of those who believe they might be predestined to hell or heaven, to demonstrate that they are, are among the elect, is to keep their worldly goods and look after them. You know, out, of, out of Protestant predestinationism comes, comes capitalism, that kind of move. But those two stories are conflicting, one between you know, a, God of, a God of justice and a God of love and a God who pretty well can do what he likes. Is that, is that on the money? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. This, gentleman, this gentleman, before he explodes, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, just, it's just more like uh, observation. The, um, um, with the Jewish religion, they did, before Christianity, they, they had very little concepts of heaven, did they? I don't think. It's only when you know, Christianity emerged, the idea of heaven became more prominent, didn't it? Pretty well, pretty well. You don't the, hear in the Old Testament, I don't think much about heaven. Yeah. Here, no, the, the ancient Jews, like the ancient Greeks, yeah. really held that everybody went to the same place. And it was for the Hebrews, Sheol, and for the ancient Greeks, Hades. And, it was, and everyone went there, and it was down there, and it was a gloomy sort of half-life. Now, somewhere along the line, you know, let's say that's about 500 BC probably around about 200 BC, we're starting to get the idea of the moral heaven developing, as I was saying before. You're getting the idea that people should get their just desserts on the other side of the grave, and you're getting the idea that God will come in judgment and make a judgment for the good and a judgment for the wicked. So that by about 200 BC, there's, there is within the Jewish tradition into which Jesus was born this sense that God is soon coming into judgment and will divide up, blow, will divide the sheep from the goats. And, uh, you know, the goats will have, you know, the way is narrow that leads to eternal life and those who find it are few. But the way is wide that leads to eternal destruction and those who find it are many. You know, that's Jesus at his eschatological, most frightening. You know, he's dividing the world up into losers and winners. You, you get a second question because you had to wait, but yeah, we, we will do it. Yeah, well, the, the near-death experience thing cuts both ways. Mostly they're near-death, people who have NDEs see lights rather than darkness, and they think it's a good thing that's happening. It tends to go generally with sort of universalism. But I do remember a rather hokey movie some years ago called Flatliners, which indicated that you know, the slightly sleazy guy went to hell and you know, he had an NDE of hell. And now, in the medieval period, journeys were often to heaven or to hell. It split pretty evenly. We don't tend to have too many to hell, but that's what you'd expect in a modern heaven where really everyone's going to be saved. Yeah. Hold on there. Hello. Um, I just have um, a quick question. It's, um, you spoke about saints being very active in the heavenly world. Yeah. Uh, please, can you elaborate on that? There are many skills, I believe, that I've heard of, but I just wanted to... You know, yeah, look, I, I, think it, I think it comes out of... How can I put this? The traditional idea of heaven was we would spend eternity worshipping and praising God and we'd be happy enough doing it. That's the first thing. The modern idea of heaven says two things. It says that, one, we should be able to make moral progress in heaven so that it, you know, we end up at 
point X when we die, we should be able to go on becoming more morally perfect. How do we do that? Well, you do it through a much more active life on the other side. So it's, it's, it's a kind of endorsement in the mid-19th century, I think, coming out of industrialization and the Victorian period of the virtues of activity and hard work and moral development and moral growth and becoming the sort of people we all should be and so on. So I think out of Vic the Victorian, I mean, you know, to be fair, I find that sort of stuff a little bit in the, in the 17th century too. But by the middle of the 19th century, you know, this is a very Victorian idea of what heaven should be like, a place of moral progress and a place where we'll be active, doing good, helping others, etc., etc. Sorry if we couldn't help. There you go. Come back. A uh, very interesting talk. I'm just curious, um, because it's not only religious thoughts will it, which will involve thoughts about the afterlife. Um, with the transhumanist movement, yeah. especially Ray Kurzweil's um, uh, reaching this singularity, um, do you see that having any influence on how views might change about afterlife um, in afterlife even if it's an, even if it's in a different form a technological form look I, I now I kick myself a colleague of mine just wrote a piece on transhumanism and I haven't read it <laughs> damn I, I could give an intelligent answer well had I read that piece but say something like this I think it goes I think it goes to uh, you know a kind of secularization of the afterlife it's a, it's a putting into the here and now the possibilities of a kind of immortality, a progress, uh, rather than something that happens after death. So you might say that transhumanism becomes a kind of utopian, this-worldly, secular afterlife. Would that do? I think that's what I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Go on, then. Go on, then. This is the last question, so please make it a good one. Oh, sorry. No, I was interested um, when um, Arthur Conan Doyle spoke in New York. He went to New York, and all the professional religionists all got together against him. Mm. You know, the rabbis, Catholics, bishops, all Anglicans. Now, <laughs> is it because of their, their they're so interested in their having the power in this world, or? or what was their objection to? Look, I think, I think two things with spiritualism. One, one, for mainstream Christianity, liberal, whether liberal Catholic or liberal Protestantism, spiritualism is sitting outside of the norms for the sorts of reasons I laid down. You know, traditional Christianity is about the end of the world coming or the beatific vision. It's not about club meds after death. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think important about spiritualism... <laughs> The other thing about spiritualism, which the mainstream didn't like, was that spiritualism essentially was the democratization of religion. It took away the power of the clergy, let's put it simply like that. It did two things. It democratized religion, but what's really important about spiritualism in the 19th century is that it had very significant uh, gender outcomes because mediums were predominantly women. So spiritualism became a means by which women could empower themselves as religious leaders, and surprise, surprise, the religious leaders of the traditional uh, denominations who were blokes 
weren't really all that impressed. So I think, you know, I think that's, you know, one, the gender issue, and two, coming out of that too, or the gender issue coming out of the democratisation of religion. Any one of us, we don't need priests, we don't need bishops, we don't need clergy, we can just gather at home. We don't need churches. We just gather at home, hold hands, and invoke the spirits, and hey presto, auntie appears, knocking and rapping and talking, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I look at the photos now of, you know, manifestations of spirits. I think I had one there, didn't I? You know, they, they just look so hokey, you know, they look like cardboard cutouts. But, you know, <coughs> gee, the will to believe, I don't know. Yeah, is that, I think that's, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. The will, we will end with the will to believe. Um, and ultimately, this is a question we will find out after death. Or not. Or not, <laughs> as the case may be. A big round of applause, people.